HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more and find the store nearest to you. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. We are a member-supported, nonprofit food radio station. That means that every single thing we do, from broadcasting 35 weekly shows for free to bringing you exclusive content from sold-out food events across the country, to offering scholarships to high school students, is only possible thanks to the support of our loyal members. And we want you to join the club. Become a member during our 2017 Summer Drive to get access to sweet swag and pledge your support to the world's only food radio station. Visit heritageradionetwork.org donate to become a member now. Hello, this is your host, Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. On today's show, I'm going to be interviewing a woman who connects innovators at the intersection of food, tech, data science, design, research, and entrepreneurship. I read her newsletter religiously to stay up to date on everything from investment in the food space to technological advances. But first, I'm going to tell you about a meal that I had recently. I was in San Francisco's Hayes Valley and ate at an untraditional omakase restaurant called Robin. The chef is a guy named Adam Tortosa, and there's actually a fantastic piece on Eater written by Stephanie Tudor about his opening, his planning process, his thinking, and how much it all cost. I love numbers. I love money. And I loved reading how he spent every single penny to open this place. It also made me appreciate so much more the meal that I had and the environment that I was in because I knew how hard he thought about um, the wallpaper, how hard he thought about the counter, how hard he thought about the chairs, and how every single element in his mind was working together to create the perfect restaurant experience. And that carries through, that, that thoughtfulness. I sat down uh, with Jen Pelka um, from Magnum PR, who has a great place in San Francisco called The Riddler, which is a champagne bar. And she was, <clears throat> excuse me, she was also 
on Speaking Broadly in the past. Check it out. So the two of us were sitting there, and I casually said that I liked uni. It was not, like, a big statement. It was not like, please now start feeding me uni for the rest of the night. But Adam listened to that, and in fact, I had uh, uni from Japan, uni from Santa Barbara, uni from Baja, each time showcasing a different aspect of the uni. One time it was really creamy. One time it was, you know, had a little bit more texture. One time it had caviar on top. And those were not the only things that we ate that night, but it just showed me when I gave, I put myself in Adam's hand, I got something very special and very personalized back. So I recommend to anyone who's heading to San Francisco and you want to have an extraordinary omakase meal, you have to check that out. And now... I'm delighted to introduce Danielle Gould, who's the founder of Food and Tech Connect. Hello. Hello. How are you? Thank you for having me. I'm so, so happy you're here. I love meeting the person behind uh, one of my favorite, favorite reads of the week. You do so much work, I feel like, on my behalf and all of your subscribers' behalf to keep us informed about um, what's going on in the good food movement and also giving all of us educational tools and doing these hackathons to try to improve the um, the food world. I know you do some consulting. Um, it, you do so many things there. <laughs> but the thing that I take away most and that I want to start out with is you are at like the white hot center of what the most important and interesting and promising innovations are in the food and tech space. And since I like a little optimism to you know, start the show in, in every day, what do you see that's like an optimistic view on food and technology and what we can expect going forward? So if you like optimism, I'm the right person. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. You know, you, you could be, it could be all rainy yeah. days in your mind. Well, I like to scare people a little bit, but mm-hmm. also throw in some optimism. So I think that the the most exciting thing really is, and in addition to technology, we're really looking at how new business models are transforming the food industry as well, and how eaters are really reshaping the industry. And so I think that one of the most exciting things that we're seeing is that because eaters have been voting with their dollars, the top 25 food companies lost $18 billion in market share. $18 billion. And that happened within the span of five years. And so what you're seeing is that every large food company has launched a fund or an accelerator or both, right? They're starting to make acquisitions or investments in very early stage companies. You're seeing a whole new ecosystem of investors and accelerators that are that have popped up. I have representatives from governments all over the world that reach out to me to say, how do we create an innovation ecosystem for food entrepreneurs as a model for building more food sovereignty, but also economic growth? So this isn't just something that's happening, you know, right here in in New York or in San Francisco. It's global. 
And so much of it has been driven by eaters. So I think, I mean, it gets, gives me yeah. chills. Just <laughs> well, it's funny because in the, in the newsletter, there's a whole section for eaters. Yeah. You know, I'm looking at the consumer packaged goods yeah. or retail or agriculture, and then I come to eaters. And I'm like, oh, that's so interesting that we eaters get an entire section. And I guess that's why, um, because we eaters are, are driving so much change. But when I hear about all the accelerators, and I'm fascinated by the big food companies having the accelerators or the... In making investments in food, are they doing good yet? I mean, do we know any of the outcomes? Yeah, so I mean, I think that the the jury's still out. It's so early. I mean, you've had a couple of big successes, right? Um, so you have, you know, the jury's still out on the companies that are coming out of the accelerators because the accelerators are two to three years old. So a lot of the companies that are coming out wouldn't be acquired. Um, m- Almost all of the companies, or many of them, have raised capital. Um, they've built relationships that help them accelerate. You know, I mean, for example, I, I was heavily um, actively involved with Excel Foods, mm-hmm. and um, one of the companies, Exo um, uh-huh. Protein. So they were one of the first companies that were making protein bars from cricket flour, and. I was at JFK and I saw them, you know, their bars are being sold at JFK. That's crazy that cricket bars are being sold in the airport. It is great. Um, Jordan Gasper from Excel Foods was on Speaking Broadly. And I said to her, I went to an airport and she seemed to own the entire shop. So all these innovations that she has helped propel forward, which are sort of foods that you might not have heard of. Mm -hmm. There are snack foods that are good for you. You hadn't heard of them five years ago. Now they're at the airport, which I think is what a great way to expose so many people. So many people. To the food. Okay, I'm going to focus you then on some of my obsessions within your world. Um, So I'm really interested in um, microbiomes. Yeah. Because I don't know anything about them, but Mm -hmm. you do, and you're a little obsessed with them. Yeah. So what can you tell me about microbiomes? So microbiomes, I mean, this is, we're at the very beginning. I keep getting to these beginning things. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, this whole industry where it's so early on, which is really exciting. So the idea is that we have, we are more um, bacteria than we are like our own DNA, right? We have 10 times more bacteria than our own DNA make up our body. And, um, and a lot of that, that our microbiome, um, resides in our gut, Right. So like I think like 90 percent of our serotonin is produced in our gut. And so we're just at the early stages of understanding how our microbiome impacts all parts of our life, how we think, you know, all all different kinds of disease states, um, mental health issues. Right. We're at the very beginning. There is a lot of research being done. A lot of it's being done on the colon. Um, which, um, and, you know, we're, we're really early stages, but the idea is that they, researchers believe that if we can optimize people's microbiome, then you can improve health outcomes, right? You can lower incidence of mental health issues, um, particularly around schizophrenia, um, that you can, the microbiomes of, um, athletes, professional athletes are different than the microbiomes of, you know, certain, of, of lay people. <laughs> okay, so um, 
how do we feed and love our microbiomes? Like, is that, you know, the world of kombucha and kimchi? I know you're a kimchi obsessive. Yes. Um, well, it really depends on the person. Also, it's so individualized. Each individual person has a very specific microbiome and they need certain things. Um, so, yes, as a starting point, as a general starting point, though, fermented foods are amazing. Prebiotic foods are great. So, um, they're... Uh, if cabbage, you know, really, really good kombucha, um, kefir, like all the different yogurts, all that stuff is really good for. I can see this is just going to completely um, <laughs> change my refrigerator. Yes. Um, and okay, another like place where our obsessions intersect: urban farming. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know that you um, are really interested in agriculture and urban agriculture, and. What do you think the future of vertical farming is? Is that something that you think is promising to feed the world? It's very expensive. It's also in early days. Mm-hmm. What's the outlook? So it is early days. And I think when I think about the future and the amount of people we're going to have to feed, we're going to have to be feed. We're going to have to grow food everywhere. So I don't think it's an either or. I think it's an and. Um, and I think we'll be growing a lot of stuff in the city. I think we'll be um, growing things on, we'll be growing food on individual apartment buildings that are shared. Um, and But I, I don't think that we're ever going to displace farmers, right? Rural farmers. And we need that because actually agriculture is also part of a whole ecosystem where we build healthy soils. We can't grow everything in cities. It just doesn't work. And actually there's no need to. Um, but, you know, a perfect example of kind of the future. So an apartment building that's opening up right next to us, as an amenity, they have an urban farm on the rooftop and you can rent space in that urban farm. And so I just think 25, 50 years out, can you imagine if you know people are growing food on their rooftops, they're trading with one, one another um, as just one part of that, that I love that. So system. you're going to get your parking space, you're going to get mm-hmm. your apartment, and you're going to get your rooftop space, which yeah. is going to be your garden. Yeah. And then you can like enter a barter system, like I'll make... I'll do the carrots, you do the lettuce. Yeah. Um, I like that. I like that vision of a future. A friend of mine is uh, working with Farm Shelf, at, which is a, yeah, restaurants. You can go and the restaurants grow the food in the restaurant and they snip it for your salads, mm-hmm. which, you know, me, I'd love to be Dan Barber and, you know, have an entire field at uh, Blue Hill Stone Barns. But if not, you know, I like the idea of freshly cut lettuce for my salad or there, there are grocery stores now that are um, also growing and you can cut the food before you take it home. Yeah. Which I thought it was fascinating. And I think actually there's going to be a really interesting intersection between the microbiome and growing. Um, when How we, awesome. <laughs> when we understand what nutrients you need um, in the future, I think that you'll be able to customize the the nutrient levels in your your produce based on what you need. Okay, this is another <laughs> thing that completely blows my mind. That is, you know, in your space, which is the personalization of nutrition, and that's going to be huge, right? The personalizing wellness. Mm-hmm. It has a name. What's the name? Personalized nutrition. Oh, that's very simple. <laughs> I thought it was funnier than that. Um, doesn't it have a nickname. Anyway, so what what are we going to see there? Like, is everybody going to get a readout of their blood, and you're just going to we're all going to be at the table eating different things to maximize our good health? Or what do you see? Well, I mean, I think that people who choose to eat like that in the future will. And I think that there's going to be a lot of, 
you're just going to have a much better understanding of what's best for your body and what your body needs. And you can choose to eat that way or not. Um, I think, you know, that that there are going to be a lot more options that make it easier for you to shop that way or eat that way. I mean, we we just did this. You did the the future the, project. The fe- yeah, yeah, the future market. Uh-huh. Market. Um, which so is, tell us about the future market, which I, I believe your husband, Mike Lee, yes. um, designed, created. Yes. So tell us about that. So the future market, it's a conceptual grocery store that's stocked with products from the future. And the whole idea is that it's inspiration. My husband grew up in Detroit, and he grew up going to all the auto shows, and he loved the concept cars. Well, that's so great. I love that. Because the concept cars were these cars that inspire the industry to think more ambitiously. And when he once he got into food and he started going to Expo West and all to these you know fancy food, he said, what is... Which are shows where new products are displayed right. for uh, people to take a look at. He said... And taste. This is what's going on right now, but there's nothing ambitious about what the future should look like. So this is his answer to that. Um, and the idea is really to inspire the industry to think more ambitiously. So um, we helped design what the world looks like, right, in 25, 50 years. And then if you can under, have an understanding of the realities of the world then, what are the products that we're consuming? What do we hope those products look like? Um, and so at the- And what was the answer? Well, at the core was this personalization engine, um, and that was called food. It's called Food ID, and so you answer a series of questions. In the future, you'd also, you know, have it'll have all your biometric data and your microbiome information, and then it offers up products that are personalized based on your needs. So, for example, there was um, there was uh, Pure Culture, which was a a um, yogurt that is customized based on your specific probiotic needs. The best, you know, the probiotics that you need, the kind of um, milk that's best for you, whether it's camel milk or goat milk or almond milk. Um, so that's, so the personalization was huge there. But then also starting to think about some other key things that we're seeing today and what happens if those become mainstream. So, for example, sea farming. Uh huh. Um, so what if algae is a huge part of our diet in the future? It's already partly there. Yes. It's not huge, but people are interested. Yeah, certainly. people are interested, right? Yeah. It's it's taking things so that it's not like we're it's this dystopian, you know, kind of soylent or like you're eating a pill and that's your that's how you get nourishment in the future. It's this idea of taking things that are just kind of fringe and starting to bubble up right now. But what happens if you did that at scale? Um, so. Yeah, the algae is an is an example. Um, one of our favorites is this product called Crop Crisps, which was really inspired by Dan Barber. Ah, fantastic! Um, so the idea is a it's a a play on um, a wheat thin, uh-huh. and the idea is that it's a wheat thin that that supports healthy soils through crop rotation. Oh my God, Dan would just like die and go to heaven. He's a fan. He's a fan <laughs> of this. So every year you would have a different grain that is part of building a healthy soil crop rotation, right? So you have winter wheat one year, you have lentil another year. Um, And so that's taking these ideas that are kind of, that chefs do such an amazing job right now of, of bringing to the forefront of culture. And then how do you do that at scale? So those are some of the kinds of things. And so did you have, um, 
sort of food companies shopping for their own ideas for the future yeah. because I could only imagine like who doesn't want that idea yeah. and to make it happen. Yeah. So we said steal it or work with us to build it. Right. And we're happy with either. We just want to get these ideas out there. We want to show you that it's possible. Um, and yeah, you can go and browse all the products at thefuturemarket.com. I'm totally, I mean, I saw the storefront and the, the sort of the design of it, yeah. but I didn't walk through the doors and, you know, uh, take a look at the, the products yet, which I, I want to do. Um, and what about this, the Amazon and Whole Foods deal? Cause I feel like you've covered it an awful lot mm-hmm. on your site and people are, uh, farmers are concerned about what effect this may have. So is it too early to tell? Yeah, I think it's too early to tell. Um, I think that there's been a lot of early excitement, um, and I think that there should be. I think that this is a great opportunity, um, but that there should also be some healthy skepticism about what happens when you have this level of consolidation. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's really exciting. I mean, what and some some of the financials just came out around um, Amazon's financials and the details of the financials and what they found is that without AWS, which is Amazon Web Services, mm-hmm. which most company a lot of companies use as their server, um, Amazon would be losing a lot of money. So Amazon's making a lot of money. They're losing money on things that they actually think are very important. And so there's an opportunity for them. I mean, this the grocery sector, food sector, it's just kind of a drop in the bucket for them. And so to be able to invest in sustainable agriculture, which is, you know, it's huge. And their opportunity to do that, I hope that they do that. And to also make good food more accessible, making it less expensive, making it um, from uh, the delivery you know, to to people who live in all different kinds of communities that may not have access to um, grocery stores that sell these kind of products. I guess the concern, though, is uh, pushing down the prices for the farmers, right? And right. that Whole Foods has apparently done a good job at working at with the farmers and paying them a reasonable sum for their goods. And if Amazon pushes down the price, then that would in turn stress the farmers. Yeah. Well, that's where I think it comes we're at this interesting point with technology and food and we as eaters have to be very vigilant and say, and very careful and ask a lot of questions and push companies. Ultimately it'll come down to, you know, if consumers don't care about this, they may not care about it. So we have to be very vocal and say that that's not okay with us and really work and support the farmers. Um, I, there's a joke in my family that, Every time I go to a farmer's market, like I have to stop at every stand and buy something because it doesn't matter if I need it, which is terrible because then I'm supporting food waste, which is, right. is worse. <laughs> but I, I just like, I just want to buy. They're so, it's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. I want to support them. And it's such hard work to be a farmer. Such hard work. Such hard work. And I want them to stay in business. So, you know, I've, I'm there for, I'm there for those farmers forever, um, forevermore. When you look at the in investment that it's going into the food space, um, where's most of the money being spent? So a lot of money has been spent on um, delivery, 
like the majority of the okay. the money. Um, and then and that, that, that would be meal kit delivery, meal kit delivery, restaurant, you know, online on demand delivery. Right. There was a lot of money also that went into agricultural technologies, um, and. That happened for a couple of reasons. One, because Monsanto acquired um, a company called Climate Corp for close to a billion dollars, which was, you know, one of the largest exits, which was the largest exit. Um, and also because you have a lot of clean tech investors that have started to come into um, ag tech. If you think about it, energy is actually agriculture. So, right. So it, it makes sense. Um, and yeah, so that's where you're seeing a lot of money going and you're starting to see more and more money going into CBG which would be consumer packaged goods so, yeah sorry um, <laughs> well I think that that's definitely the eater well both sides of the eater equation I, yeah I'm intrigued by the question how are we getting the food that we're eating I mean yes. because a lot of people are finding some way to not cook it themselves yes. um, and so I and yet, you make that decision every single day. Like, am I going to cook? What am I going right. to buy? And technology can be such a great um, piece of that equation. Well, um, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to hear about how you grew this extraordinary business and grew this really spectacular expertise that you have. So stay with us. And we'll be right back after just a quick break. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Whole Foods Market believes in seeking out local, fresh, and seasonal food and in supporting local farmers, makers, and the community as a whole, economically and agriculturally. Whole Foods Market believes in food that is vivid and colorful, fresh and full of nutrients, food that connects you to your body, the seasons, and to nature, food that helps you do more, sleep better, and wake up happier. Found in over 400 locations throughout the United States, Whole Foods Market only sells food that meets their standards, which means no artificial colors, flavors, preservatives, or sweeteners, ever. Whole Foods Market believes in real food. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more. Hello, this is your host, Dana Cowan. Welcome back to Speaking Broadly. I have as my guest today, Danielle Gould, who is telling me everything about the future of food. And it's looking pretty good and pretty tasty. And I feel that, you know, I'm going to be eating personalized food in the future. I don't know what that really means for comfort food, um, because comfort food sort of is the opposite. It's so... Um, it seems so universal. Mm -hmm. It seems so unrefined. So what do you think is going to happen to comfort food in the future? Well, I think that we're always going to have pizza and <gasps> that's cheese. your favorite food. Is I, pizza your very favorite food? I, I do love pizza. You do love pizza. Okay, good. I'm glad, I'm glad we got that over with. So, um, Danielle, your route to this, uh, business has been twisty and turny. You, mm -hmm. I know that, uh, you know, you grew up and you liked food, but it's not like you were that obsessed person. Um, how did your career evolve to come to this point where you launched, launched Food and Tech Connect? So it, there were a lot of twists and turns. Um, I would say the first moment that kind of led me on this journey was I was in um, school at University of Wisconsin, and I um, just happened into a course, which really changed my life. Um, so it was the last day to switch classes. My 
um, my advisor said, you're never going to get into this class, but you know, next year, try and get into it. But there was a glitch in the system <laughs> and it let me in. And the course was um, history of the American environment. Did you love your entire career actually could be because of a glitch in the system? Yes. I mean, hear that listeners. That's kind of amazing. Yeah. So go for it no matter what. Seriously, you gotta, you gotta take chances and yeah. when it's meant to be, it's meant to be. Right. Um, Cause there was a 300 person waiting list. Oh my goodness. Yes. You jumped the line. Yeah. I jumped the line yeah. and thankfully they let me stay in. Right. Um, <laughs> And yeah, so it was History of the American Environment with um, Professor William Cronin, um, who just really blew my mind and you know changed my life. And that got me down the path. Because of that course, I then did a minor in environmental studies and um, with a focus on sustainability. And so when I left school, I lived in Israel for a couple of years. And I came back and I started a master's program in nonprofit management at the new school. So was your dad doing PR for nonprofits? Did I get some piece of that right? He, my dad, he's in advertising. Okay, advertising. And he had done, he had done a lot of work with nonprofits. I really like, is there some family connection (laughs) being drawn to the nonprofit world? Well, I, so I actually, I was really interested in social entrepreneurship, But I just, after living in Israel for three and a half years, I really wanted to get back into school. And I didn't want to wait to do an MBA and, you know, go through the GMATs and all that. So I said, nonprofit management, I don't have to do my GMATs and I can just get in right now and I'll get these business skills through the nonprofit management. I will say that is another really great strategy, but it is. That's yeah. also jumping the line. Yeah. Because the GMAS, I wouldn't want to study for those. Yeah. Okay. So nonprofit so, management. So yeah, I was there and I was really interested in green building. Um, and we didn't have any, they, there wasn't any program around that. There wasn't any expertise at the time. So I did this summer program at this place called Arco Santi. And that's a friend there had recommended. And the idea was I was going to go into the desert and learn hands-on green building um, and while I was there, there was this kind of like mad scientist who had this idea for what he called an energy apron. So this community was on a mesa, and his idea was a, to build a greenhouse that was terraced along the mesa. And at every terrace, there would be microclimates, hmm. and so you could grow different things, and that all of the food and um, would help feed the city, and that all the energy, the heat that was produced would help power the city, and then all the waste would go back into wow. the greenhouse. And this is 2008, and no one had, you know, there was like one article about Dixon de Pommier about vertical farming, and no one was talking about this. But And I certainly didn't know about it, but it blew my mind, and I said, I have to leave my <laughs> master's program, and I have to do this. I think, I mean... Boy, that is so tough. I mean, you make the decision to, and it was so like smart to do the master's program. Oops, there's something even better. So at that time, this company, um, there, there was this nonprofit organization called um, New York Sunworks. They had this greenhouse barge, this floating barge that was an educational greenhouse where they taught people about um, hydroponic growing. And they were just starting a for-profit company that was a design consultancy. So I said, you have to hire me. I just <laughs> left my master's program. This is exactly what I want to do. And so I was their first hire. And actually, the funny oh story, gosh. I don't know if you know Viraj Puri, but um, so he's a CEO of Gotham Greens. Oh, and I, I actually know him. I replaced him. He I replaced his job. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. With the organization. What good lineage. Yes. 
Um, yeah, so it was while I was there, I was doing, they, I got hired as an office manager, but then I started doing PR and business development and just all different kinds of things. We were a small team. And I started, my boss said, you have to start using Twitter to tweet out our press releases. <laughs> that was before it came trolls. Yes. Back. Yes. Um, and I became fascinated with information flow. Twitter totally changed my life. All of a sudden I started realizing that people, there was all this information we needed as a company. So we were consulting with other companies on what, on building greenhouses on their rooftops. And we had to help them build the, do the business case and, you know, all of the, the technical um, specs. And what I realized is that we needed access to all this data that we didn't, we couldn't find, but people were openly sharing it on Twitter, on listservs that I was on, on Facebook. So it got me thinking about what if we scraped all the data together to get a better real-time picture of our food system and that could inform policy decisions, business decisions. And so I called it like a smart grid for food. I didn't know anyone else was thinking about this stuff, but I got, uh, I was a big economist reader at the time. I got this issue of the economist in my inbox and I realized, oh, this is big data. It was called the data <laughs> deluge. <laughs> oh, a lot of oh, people are thinking about this, just not in food. Um, and so that's how I got started. So I want to know, like, because you talk about the internet is just is a system and food is a system, and you've sort of overlaid those two, and you've made like a wonderful will leave or whatever. <laughs> so um, how do those two systems intersect? Really, like when you look at the info food system, what does that mean? So, I mean, they intersect in a lot of different ways. First, and what drew me to this, because my background is sociology, environmental studies, which are all systems, right? And the internet is actually a system, but it enables you, if when you overlay that on food, it enables you to see connections and parts of the web and the interactions between different parts of the system that you can't see otherwise, right? It's like a three-dimensional connect four. Yes, Exactly. And that's what became so fascinating to me. Because here you have, so we say that the food system is a system, except for the way that it, and it is, but we operate it as if it's a supply chain, which is a chain, except for. Except it's a broken chain, a right? A broken chain, right. right? So, like a restaurant, a restaurateur is re relying on so many people throughout the, the chain. And. Uh, or throughout the system, and yet they have no connection to those people. They have no way of gaining insights or, you know, even from a transparency level, understanding where the ingredients come from, what, you know, what the inputs were. Um, and so the Internet changes that, right? It enables you to see things that you wouldn't otherwise be able to see. It, it creates, um, it streamlines Connectivity. It breaks. It enables the breakdown of silos, which is just you know one of a huge issue when it comes to the food system. Um, and the other thing is that what's really interesting about food, you know, there could be like ten thousand different kind types of tomatoes, mm -hmm. but that's lost, right? Like when one person talks about a tomato, you don't necessarily know what tomato they're talking about, right? And so. I think what's what's interesting is the ability to preserve biodiversity, but uh -huh. also to understand what start to understand when one person talks about something, what that means vis-a-vis -vis what someone else is talking about. And that becomes important when you're talking about from a research perspective, that's, that's important from a business perspective, right? So you and when you're looking for solutions out there, 
you need to kind of know what you're what you're working with when you're when you're sharing knowledge between um, either like different researchers or different communities on best practices, those kind of things. And now you've built an extraordinary community of um, people who need to know the type of information that you share. Um, I'm I'm curious. The the work that goes into it is very in, intense, and you were saying that, uh, in fact, that it's been difficult. It's been fantastic, and you're at a great place, but there's also a process in getting there. Can you tell me about some of what you went through to get to this, what's a pretty great place right now? Yeah. So, I mean, entrepreneurship is very difficult, um, and it's always a journey, and, um, and I was a sole founder, so that was right. also really tough. And just, you know, when I started this, which was seven years ago, everyone thought I was crazy, right? No one was talking about this. They said people will never invest in these companies. No one will ever share their data, right? Farmer. How did you know you weren't crazy? I just, I just saw it. I yeah. just couldn't see it. And I think because um, I believed it so clearly and I, and I didn't know that anyone else was thinking about it. And then when I, when I started to see that the way that technology was was impacting education and financial services and healthcare. I just knew that there that the same thing was going to come to food. It, it was going to come to food, so it validated it. But I just believed it my in, um, in my gut. So, so that made it difficult to turn this into a business because people didn't really believe right that that. Um, and were you potentially looking for investors in your? company or people to support your projects or um so I was always very cautious about investors because I just knew that I wanted to build something that would have a huge impact and that part of food technic had always been trying to find that model Mm -hmm. so not wanting to raise investment for something where I wasn't sure that that was the right model to have the kind of impact that that we wanted to have um and so it was very and also when it would have been you know, when I got started, there was no ecosystem of support around this, and there were no accelerators or anything like that. So, right. so it's, it is extraordinary to pause and think how much it's changed. Right. So, so much so. And you had a lot to do with it. Just showcasing what existed, right, and then um, helping move it along and, yeah. ha- and having people think outside the box and bring people together. Yeah. Anyway, so-, so... So it was difficult, and I made a... Um, you know, we had really gotten started, and a lot of our our capital and um, came from our consulting and our mm-hmm. events. So the consulting I would do, and I still do today, working with big food companies and big restaurant groups to help them understand the innovation landscape and their role within it. Um, and then we would do these big events. We would do hackathons, which are these events. Um, where we would focus on a particular topic, we would bring together designers, developers, um, industry stakeholders, entrepreneurs together to break down the problems and then rapidly prototype solutions over the course of a weekend. So we did like hack dining, um, we did hack meat, we worked with some of the largest food companies like Applegate, Google, Chipotle, they were all um, sponsors for those events. So that's what we had done. But we, I, you know, we weren't an event production commun- uh, company. And so I said, you know, I started to see that as there were more and more entrepreneurs in this space, and we wanted to grow that because we really thought, think that entrepreneurs are, a, are hugely important to building 
our new food economy that but they lacked like a lot of the skills that you need to grow a food company and so we launched this platform food tech ed and so it was online education for food entrepreneurs and so we've been doing that but the problem was that these the events will suck you dry sure will (laughs) (laughs) um and so i decided yeah very labor intensive that Instead of invest, instead of doing a big event, we were going to just put all of our energy into food tech ed because we thought that's the real scalable model and we'll bring in investment. Um, and we've been talking to an investor who kept on saying that he was going to put money in, put money in, but we hadn't signed anything. And this is where my big mistake was. And then ultimately, when it came down to it, he just wanted so much more mm-hmm. than was reasonable. Right. And so I had to say, no, we're not going to do that. Um, no, like, thank you very much. And at that point, so then I had to figure out, well, how am I going to make payroll? Right. And so I spent a year. It was just the most stressful year of my life. I was also getting married and just really worrying, you know, nonstop about how I was going to make payroll and how I was going to keep this afloat. Um, and that stress level really, you know, I was just on a coasting on adrenaline and once things started to finally you know calm down and um, we had a we had a secure um, revenue stream I just got really sick Hmm. you let your defenses down and then you just got swamped by yeah illness I got so it's something I mean I'm becoming very vocal about it because I worry I don't want anyone else to go through it but I got I had something happen to my small intestine it's called SIBO Kat Kinsman has been talking about it a lot recently. Oh, yeah. And you were um, looking for people to participate in um, a trial of some kind. Or yeah. A, yeah. Um, so we... So and what is it? So SIBO, it's small intestinal bacteria oh, overgrowth. And it's mm-hmm. something... They, what, what it is is if, when you have a lot of stress... The stress is one cause of this. But it can let a lot of bacteria... It can let bacteria into your small intestine, which is not supposed to have any hmm. bacteria. And it's very hard to get rid of that bacteria. Hmm. Um, and what it does is when you have bacteria there, it eats your, it takes your nutrients. It eats your food. And that doesn't sound good. It does, it's not. No. And, yeah, so it's not, it's not very um, – it has been – you know, I'm still on the journey. I'm out, I'm out of the woods as far as it being the worst, you know, um, uh, but for a long time, I mean, there were there were months when all I was eating was like eight foods because I could not function. Wow, having any more of that, and um, so that's why it's super, I talk about this because, and I'm starting to get much more vocal because I think taking care of yourself when you're in this industry when it can be so hard, especially if you're driven by passion, mm-hmm. which so many, many of us are. Right, um, it's easy to not take care of yourself, and it's so important to do that. Um, and just to make sure that you're relaxing and enjoying life and not letting, you know, stress is a silent killer. Yeah, that's, um, I think that's such great advice. One thing that is exciting and I guess at the same time sort of sad in the, in the restaurant industry, which is where Mm -hmm. I spent so much of my time and Kat Kinsman, uh, who you mentioned, who is also on speaking broadly, uh, is very vocal on the subject of, um, mental health in the restaurant industry because a lot of chefs are, are so driven and they drive through depression, anxiety, yeah. and don't take care of themselves. So I think it's fantastic because the optimist in me says 
the more we talk about it, the more people will get help, and the more they will realize that it's okay to have a balanced life. And the the craziness that's driving them that they think they need yeah. to do well actually makes them unwell. So, yeah, completely. But I will say, I think it's been such a blessing mm-hmm. for me um, because I've learned so much. I've and I think the most important thing that I've learned is when you literally react to every food that you eat Mm -hmm. you understand on a cellular level the awesome responsibility we have as nourishers Mm -hmm. and people that are basically like every time you feed someone you are nourishing them you're giving them love you are you're not you're nourishing them you're nourishing the soil all these things play it play into this and so i think for the work that i'm that i do as far from a community standpoint and the new project that i'm working on I think that was so important to understand that at a cellular level, and that's really my new my new thing is just reminding people like what an awesome responsibility we have, and how connected it all is. Right, yeah. as you say, yeah. you could nurse yourself, but you can't actually do that well without uh, taking care of the environment at yeah. the same time. You mentioned your new project, yeah, and uh, I'm incredibly excited to hear about it because you you told me just the littlest bit like you have a project, but yeah. uh, <laughs> what is it? So, um, for the past seven years, my husband, so my husband, he is a food product designer. Um, he launched one of the first, um, supper clubs in New York. He did this big, uh, the L train, um, lunch he co-produced and he did doppelganger dinner at the future market. Um, he worked at Chobani and he was a, um, worked on their innovation team there. And he's just been consulting for the last couple of years on food product design. And then on the Food Tech Connect side... Can I ask something? So when you say food product design, does that mean like designing food or designing packaging? Or does it sort of an intersection of the food. two? The food itself. Food, yeah. And it's called foods. designing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Didn't know that was yeah. a word. Okay. Yeah. Um, so then on, on the Food Tech Connect side, we've been building this community. Um, it's the largest food innovation community with 30,000... 37,000 members in 32 countries around the world um, and highly active, activated community. And so what we're doing now is we're bringing our expertise and our network and our community together in order to create a new company called Alpha Food Labs. And everything is coming under one roof. That's fantastic. The two yeah. of you together yes. to do Alpha Food Labs. Yes. Oh, that's uh, so great. Yeah. And Alpha I'll- is the original. Uh, yes. <laughs> So Alpha Food Labs, it's an innovation lab for food products and services that are better for people, planet, and profit. You have a great tagline. Sometimes (laughs) those are the hardest things to come up with, but that seems pretty simple. Yeah. So do you have your first product? Um, So we are, it's an 11-week MVP product. Wow. What's an MVP aside from most valuable player? A a minimum viable um, product. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Right. So we are within the span of 11 weeks, we've taken a brief that they gave us and working very closely with them. Of course, we are taking that from paper and creating an entire the product formulation, the brand. And we are now testing it with consumers. I'm sorry to say that sounds stressful, too, though, because you have to sort of work around the clock to make that happen. We're having so much fun. You are. It's it's the right kind of stress. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that's our that's our first project. Um, in, and, um, we're also working, Google food is another one of our, um, corporate members and very soon we're going to start working on our own products too. So the idea is that we work with, um, corporate members, 
on on their products, and then we spin out products as well. Um, and so the the future market has been great. It's enabled us to test a lot of ideas that we have, and so we um, may be commercializing some of that stuff. Wow. So. Okay. So um, I think that you're clearly an, an inspiration for the industry because of dreaming up new ideas that both help the the land, help the human, and then help a, a company, like your entrepreneurs, which is great. Is there someone um, who's inspired you? Because speaking broadly, we have something called the Hall of Dames. Okay. And I always like to introduce a new woman into the Hall of Dames with each guest. So do you have someone to propose? Yes. Um, Robin O'Brien. Um, she's been called the Aaron Brockovich of food. Oh, um, she is a, she wrote a book called The Unhealthy Truth. Um, she is a prolific blogger, speaker. Um, she is, she was an analyst, um, a Wall Street analyst. She was analyzing a lot of these big food companies. And then one day her daughter got sick. Hmm. And so she started analyzing food industry in a whole new way and she started digging into what's in our food, what's driving that. And she leads with so much courage and love, and she teaches these big food companies how to how to find the courage. And she goes out there and she tells her story. Um, and she's just, you know, I follow her and just really this idea of leading with love, and which I think is kind of the missing ingredient, right? Like food is such, there's so much love in food, except for we've extracted that. And a lot of times there's now we get into like sustainability talk and like all this measurement, but really I think this ingredient that's going to keep us to help us succeed and build this future that we all want is love. Um, and so, yeah, she's my hero. Okay. So where can we find her? And then where can we find you? And everyone should subscribe to your newsletter. So okay. give us those deets Thank too. You. Um, so for Robin, you can find her. Um, I think that she, I think food awakenings on Twitter um, and follow Robin O'Brien on uh, Facebook. She's prolific on Facebook. Um, for me, you can follow me at Food Tech Connect or um, D-H-G-I-S-M-E. D-H-G is me. Um, <laughs> and sign up for the newsletter at foodtechconnect.com. And that, people, is our show for today. Thank you so much for joining me, Danielle. Thank you, David Tadashor, the amazing engineer. And join us next week on Speaking Broadly. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.